Good morning and hello everyone again. All right, there it is. Okay, making sure we got our ducks in a row here technologically. So uh, we covered in our first presentation together the topic of the everlasting gospel. And now what we'll be addressing is this idea of uh, the statement, fear God and give glory to him. We'll primarily focus on the fear God part. And then later uh, this afternoon, we'll address the topic of the hour of his judgment has come. And so that's going to be our next couple presentations together. But I'd like to start here. We'll pray and then we'll begin. Sweet Jesus, thank you again that we had this privilege to come into your presence, to hear from you. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak with clarity. Help us to better wrap our minds around what you mean by the fear of God. And I pray that you would give us a solid biblical foundation for this. Bless us, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so one of the reasons why I'm passionate about this topic is because it's so easily misunderstood, for one. And two, I've met a lot of our people who really grapple with the topic of fear. And so I want to kind of walk through kind of a healthy biblical way to see this and how to sort through what we see. Uh, so in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, we're told that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, this implies a few things. It's really helpful. I've kind of written this out in a way that has made it easier for me to better understand. If it says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, this implies that fear robs us of power, the ability to love God and others, and to be loved by God and others, and to be able to think and make decisions with a sound mind. So fear literally alters the way that we do the essentials of life. And so this certainly is problematic, and we're going to have to wrestle with this. So what is it that God intends? Fear actually leads us to make bad decisions. Um, We see some examples of this. The people in the Gadarenes in Luke chapter 8 Whenever Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac uh, that's living amongst the tombs, they're so scared about what has happened and the pigs that run off the edge of the cliff that they literally tell Jesus to get out of here. Like, get out of here and leave because they're scared of what has happened. And so just imagine, fear led them to basically kick the Messiah out of their community. Now, is that a good decision or a bad decision? What do you think? It's a bad decision. Fear leads us to make bad decisions. Basically, the entire life of King Saul from his first fall onward is filled with him making really bad decisions that were largely fear-based. We see Elijah. Whenever Elijah calls down fire from heaven at Mount Carmel, soon after that, he gets a report that Jezebel wants him dead. And as soon as he gets word of that, the guy loses it, right? He runs for his life from the wrath of an infuriated woman, we're told. No longer wanting to see a man, he's seized with depression He's, um, he's discouraged, he's despondent, and he doesn't even want to live anymore. So he goes from a mountaintop experience with Jesus to complete despondency. And it was fear that led in this transaction, this change of thought and change of mind for him. Peter denying Jesus, right, in front of the servant girl and in front of John the Apostle. If you read the gospel carefully, uh, John's gospel, you recognize that John goes in the house John leads the servant girl to the front door. Peter's on the other side of that front door. She opens the door and says, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Which implies that she knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. And what's Peter's response right in front of John? 
I don't know the man. Right? So fear leads us to make bad decisions. So if God hasn't given us the spirit of fear and doesn't want us to have that type of experience, then what's the solution? What is it that God does want for us? This is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God doesn't just want you to intellectually agree with the possibility that maybe God loves you. He wants you to experientially know that and to believe it with every ounce of your being. Okay? Then it says that God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. God wants us to be filled with boldness in the day of judgment. But most of us are horrified about the fact that there is going to be a judgment, and we don't know what to do about that. But he says that if we know and believe the love God has for us, we won't be afraid in the judgment. Super important for us to know that. That's one of the reasons why the three angels' messages are filled with the message of God's love. It's, yeah, it's on. Um, Use this instead? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'll just stand you here, okay? And so we've, when we preach the message of God's love, centered to the heart of every aspect of the three angels' messages, this is what will lead people to be able to fear God and give glory to Him in the midst of the judgment hour. Does that make sense? That's the main premise and the purpose of that, okay? So, and we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Now, we get to verse 18. There is how much fear in love? There is no fear in love, but perfect love does what? It casts out fear. It displaces our fear. So when we are filled with God's love, it removes the possibility for us to be afraid of God, right? In an abject fear sense. And, and in fear of anything, honestly, in that sense. But fear, perfect love, casts out fear because fear involves torment. We're afraid of getting hurt. But when we are immersed in God's love, we recognize that his protection will be with us. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love, and we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The only way for you and I to fall in love with Jesus is to come face to face with the reality that he's already in love with us. Amen? This is the topic that we should be focusing on, not at the expense of other things, but we shouldn't think, oh, I talked about God's love in the first Bible study. Let's move on to the more mature adult things. Let's move on to the meat of the message. You ever people say things like this? You know, let's move on to the meat and give people present truth. Well, if you weren't aware, Ellen White actually referred to the message of Christ our righteousness as meat in due season. It is always welcome on my table and should be welcome in every meal that we serve. Amen? Whether you're talking about the state of the dead, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, we should see a true healthy picture of God's love for man in everything that we address as a people. That's what we were counseled to do. And we were told that every one of those other teachings find power in relation to the theme of the cross. So we're doing a disservice to those other teachings and to the cross when we don't center everything in that particular understanding. All right, listen to this. It is not the fear of punishment or the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciples of Christ to follow him. They behold the Savior's matchless love revealed through his pilgrimage on earth from the manger of Bethlehem to Calvary's cross, and the sight of him does what? It attracts, it softens and subdues the soul, love awakens in the heart of the beholders. They hear his voice and they follow him. 
This is the approach that needs to be taken in what we do and in what we preach. That's the counsel we're given. So not leading people to make decisions because they want to avoid hell or go to heaven. One of the reasons behind that is because it's selfishness that drives both of those responses. And is God wanting us to have an experience that's fueled by selfishness or by a reciprocating love? Right? So we shouldn't be thinking, I really want to go to heaven, so that's why I'll follow Jesus. Or I really don't want to go to hell, so that's why I'm going to follow Jesus. Neither one of those should be our motivator. It's beholding his matchless love, right, that awakens love in us, as it says in 1 John 4. Listen to this from eternity past. This is kind of a a modern-day version of Patriarchs and Prophets. Let the youth see the tender love the Father in heaven has manifested toward them, and the dignity and honor to which they are called, even to become the sons of God. And thousands would turn with contempt from selfish aims and pleasures that hitherto engrossed them. They would learn to hate sin, not merely from hope of reward or fear of punishment, but from a sense of its inherent baseness. Right? We would see sin for what it really is. So love, then, is the only true power and pure power that should motivate us in our experience and in our decision-making. And the only way to find that love is first encountering God's love for us. 1 John 4, 16, we love him because he first loved us. So fear again robs us of a love for God and a love for others because we're afraid of being hurt. Some of us are living an experience where we are walled off from interpersonal intimate relationships because we don't want to get hurt anymore. Fear has robbed us of vibrant relationships. What we desperately need is a life course altering encounter with God's perfectly selfless love for us to be fully known and fully loved. That will drive out all of our fear and bring us to a deeper love for him and the capacity to be willing to love and be loved ourselves. Does that make sense? This is what God wants for his people, okay? And I've got an example of a friend of mine that left the faith unfortunately. They're actually one of the reasons I became an Adventist too, which is even more unfortunate. But we're still very good friends. And I I asked them, because they they would not ascribe to being a Christian anymore, but I don't think they would fully go to atheism either. They're kind of in this weird kind of middle ground. But I told them, I really wrestle with the appeal of atheism. I, I struggle to understand the appeal of it because it completely denies the intrinsic moral value of a human being. You don't matter. You're a biological mistake. No one cares. And when you're gone, no one cares. And it really doesn't matter. But the problem is all of us at the deep, deep aspects of our nature and our being, we want to matter. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be appreciated and desired. And the response they gave me was so unexpected. They said, what makes it so appealing is that you don't have to deal with the fear of having hope and then being disappointed anymore. Maybe you've been there. You put your hope in God, you're following God, and then bad things happen. You think, well, I mean, uh, somehow it's going to get... And you just get to a point where you just it's hard to get your hopes up anymore. Maybe God's promised you healing, and you still haven't been healed. Maybe God has promised me you, you, that your kids are going to come back to the church, and they're still not in the church. They're still cursing God in your face. And you just wonder, when is God going to do what he said he would do? And it really gets you discouraged. And he says, the benefit to unbelief is that you don't get your hopes up anymore. You continually live in a state of disappointment. Dr. Brene Brown, especially on the topic of shame, phrases it this way. She says, it's easier to live disappointed than to be disappointed. It's easier to live in a constant state of disappointment with no expectations than to get your hopes up and be crushed. And this is the state of many people, even Christians, 
okay? But Romans 5.5 tells us that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I love that. And I'll skip this for time's sake. Galatians 6.9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. And in Romans 15, 13, I love this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's called the God of hope, which implies that he wants us to be filled with hope and he's capable of meeting our expectations. So abject fear is not God's chosen method to reach us or to motivate us. As we mentioned earlier, it's a selfish motivation. It leads us to make decisions to protect ourselves and to provide for ourselves instead of relying upon God to protect us and provide for us. Do you see the danger there when abject fear is leading the way? Now, interestingly enough, in many of the supernatural encounters that we see throughout Scripture, when people of God interacted with angels or when Jesus appeared to people, they would many times be greeted immediately with this, this phrase of fear not or do not be afraid. God doesn't want our experience with him to be driven by fear, but by true love, and he wants our perspective to shift to something better. And Hosea gives a great picture of that. Speaking of this this unfaithful bride of his, God says, therefore, I will allure her. I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. God's wanting a paradigm shift in his people. No longer feel like these groveling slaves that hope will be good enough at the end of the day. He wants us to view him as the love of our lives. Not someone to be afraid of, someone to be in love with. This is what he wants. And encountering the amazing love of God leads to that shift in our paradigm. And it's just not just our view of him, but also our view of our standing with him. And when he sees that we're ready to fall in love, he then drops to one knee in Hosea 2, verse 23, says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Even in our broken and wandering seasons, God still sees something of value in us. And I'm so thankful for that continues here, then I will sow her for myself on the earth and I will have mercy on her who have not obtained mercy. And then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people and they shall say, you are my God. So what has to take place to make this a reality? The very next chapter begins with a price being paid to buy back an unfaithful woman. This is the gospel, beloved. God paying an infinite price for an unfaithful people to make them his own. So we're no longer these groveling slaves in our minds thinking that we're not going to be good enough. Now we view ourselves as loving spouses who've come to know that Jesus is enough and that he's standing in our stead. But some of you may be really itching at this question. That's all well and good, but the Bible says to fear God and give glory to him in the first angel's message. It does say that, but what does it mean by that? Uh, Steve Grabner, I'm so bummed he couldn't be here, but he has a statement. He teaches a revelation class at our school of evangelism we run called CORE for young adults. And he says, revelation means what it means. It doesn't always mean what it says, right? It means what it means. And so does Jesus literally have a sword coming out of his mouth or does it mean something by that? 
And so I think that can be applied to this particular statement because a logical question comes into my mind when I read this based on what we've just studied. How can we give glory to God when fear robs us of power, love, and the ability to think with a sound mind? Does God want his end time people who respond to the first angel's message to have no power, no love, and to not think with a sound mind? Is that what God wants? Then that can't be what we're talking about here. It can't be abject fear that we're talking about. Now, first of all, that's not where the sermon begins. We talked about that in our first presentation. It begins with the everlasting gospel. And then the appeal of that sermon, the call to action at the end of that everlasting gospel message is to fear God and give glory to him. Okay? It's the logical response to it, to the everlasting gospel. But I read a quote that was very, very helpful for me in kind of contextualizing this statement uh, and the everlasting gospel of the first angel's message in such a clear way. So we're told this in the Upward Look, page 371. We're told that the love of God ever tends to the fear of God. And what does she mean by that? Fear to offend him. Are you following the line of logic here? When we encounter the love of God, the next thing that happens is a fear is awakened in our hearts to offend the one who has done so much for us. Does that make sense? And so one precedes the other. When we encounter the love of God, it leads us to be afraid of hurting him or disappointing him, right? Or offending him. Those who are truly converted will not venture heedlessly upon the borders of any evil, lest they should grieve the spirit of God and are left to their own way, to be filled with their own doings. The word of God is the guidebook. Turn not from its pages to depend upon the human agent. So the love of God is what leads to the fear of God, and it's not abject fear of him, right? But a fear to offend him, to disappoint him, to not be faithful in the covenantal relationship. That's what's being alluded to here, okay? And so abject fear robs us of a clear picture of the love of God, and an absence of godly fear can rob us of a true perspective of our relation to God and how to follow him. He's not your fishing buddy. Right? This is Almighty God who is holy, righteous, just, and good. But he doesn't want us to be filled with abject fear. Are you seeing the two different aspects of fear here? One is total terror, and the other is understanding this is someone different. This is someone who is holy, someone who is righteous, and I want to live in a way that would ensure that our relationship can continue long-term in a healthy, reciprocal way. Does that make sense? And that's the difference here. So I think we've misread many times what's actually being said in the first angel's message. Listen to this. This is from from Eternity Past again. By Joshua's direction, the ark had been brought from Shiloh. The symbol of God's presence would deepen the impression he wished to make upon the people. And then what does he do first? He presents what towards the people of Israel. What does he present before them? The goodness of God. Then he called upon them to choose whom they would serve. The worship of idols was still to some extent secretly practiced, and Joshua endeavored now to bring them to a decision that should banish this sin from Israel. But what he did to get their minds in the right place was to first present the goodness of God before them. Then he says, if it seems evil unto you to serve Jehovah, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua desired to lead them to serve God, listen to this, not by compulsion, but willingly, to engage in his service merely from hope of reward or fear of punishment would avail how much? Nothing. 
Open apostasy would not be more offensive to God than hypocrisy and mere formal worship. I hope you followed that. Open apostasy is not more offensive to God than serving Him for selfish reasons. Selfish and shallow reasons. It's love that should lead us to follow Him. And and she's making this point that it doesn't do us any good to just show up on Sabbath, wear the right clothes, say the nice things, sing the right songs, eat the right food, and then go home and move on with your life. If your heart is not in this, and it's not truly a heartfelt, reciprocating love act of worship, why do it at all? Do you really think that God is saying, oh, they were a good boy today, put a gold sticker next to their name for this date in earth's history? Do you really think that's how petty and shallow God is? Absolutely not. Beloved, he wants your heart. What he wants more than anything is your heart. And if he has your heart, you will obey and joyfully. Amen? This is what God wants for his people. So what does fear do to us? If we use fear in our approach to this beautiful set of beliefs that God has given us, or in the way in which we raise and counsel our children, it causes harm and paralysis. I've been to 31 of our academies and multiple colleges and multiple youth conferences, and there are many of our young people that have very unhealthy pictures of God. And it makes you wonder, are we really getting this right Because if they think that God is not for them, if they're never going to be good enough, and they're only serving God out of fear of being lost, that's not worship. That's a survival instinct. But that's not the joy of the Lord. That's not what God intended for us. So when you mix biblically conservative principles with a fear-based approach, even if it's done in a gentle, loving fashion, it still leads to analysis, paralysis, and misery in the religious experience. And I've seen it way too much. Even kids that come from religiously conservative, loving homes, if it's still a fear-based theology, it still cripples them, even if the parents are loving. And so we're setting our kids up for failure if we don't recognize that. So you can scare somebody into a pew, but it's not going to keep them there. And that's one of the reasons why our kids eventually leave our movement, if we never gave them that solid root structure. And you hear so many parents say, but we raised them better than this. They knew what right and wrong was. Well, first of all, many times they weren't taught how to think. They were told what to think. And second of all, we never helped them to make this thing their own. To have a love relationship with Jesus that's yours, it's I need to do these things to be in the good graces of mom and dad or my school or my pastor or the summer camp or whoever. And so they're living a fear-based experience that's largely in obedience that's just to stay out of trouble. Well, here's where this gets really nasty. If you're only obeying to stay out of trouble, what do you think your default response will be to the Mark of the Beast crisis? You will obey to stay out of trouble. Because it was selfishness that motivated your experience all along. This is where we get into danger. If we keep lecturing our kids about everything bad that they're doing and do good, do good. Most children's stories are about obey, 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 obey. Obey your parents, obey everybody else. But they're never really learning how to fall in love with Jesus for themselves. Do you understand the difference? Doing what someone says and falling in love with them are not necessarily the same thing. Are you following me in that? And that fear-based religion cripples people, and it makes them miserable. This is one of the reasons why we as Seventh-day Adventists have rejected the teaching of eternal torment, a teaching that's brought about abject fear in the hearts of many, along with a hatred of God and a rejection of Him. This is from Ellen White's mother. 
Okay, this is uh, in the early in their when they just started kind of coming out of the churches they were in. They went to go speak to the pastor and said, "You know, I don't I don't really believe in this idea of an eternally burning hell anymore. I just I can't believe in that biblically." And the response of their pastor was, "Well, what's going to make people believe in Jesus if you don't have that?" Why would people believe in Jesus if you take this teaching off the table? This is what Ellen White's mother says. She says, if this is sound Bible truth, instead of preventing the salvation of sinners, it will be the means of winning them to Christ. And if the love of God will not induce the rebel to yield, the terrors of an eternal hell will not drive him to repentance. Are you following that? Right? It's not going to push people away. It will drive them to want to serve him. And the terror of hell is not the aspect or the motivation that we want in our experience with God. She continues, besides, it does not seem a proper way to win souls to Jesus by appealing to one of the lowest attributes of the mind, abject fear. And then she says, the love of Jesus attracts and it will subdue the hardest heart. That's Ellen White's mother that says that. And I think it's so fascinating because we just read a quote from Ellen White earlier that sounded very similar to this, didn't it? That the love of Jesus softens and attracts the soul, that that should be our motivator. Now, here's why this can matter. Um, I'll, I think I'm being a good boy in doing this. We'll find out. So how many people know who this is? He used to live in Virginia. This is Joshua Harris. Okay, maybe you know the name. He wrote books on relationships and so forth. So Joshua Harris, I saw a TED Talk of his a few years ago, and it's an unfortunate uh, situation now because Joshua Harris no longer identifies as being a Christian, and he's separated from his wife was the last that I heard. Now, this is this is heartbreaking for people who are growing up in conservative faith-based movements who really want to prize the family and relationships and doing it properly. But he did a TED Talk a few years ago that was very intriguing to me called Strong Enough to be Wrong, I believe is what it's called, or Brave Enough to be Wrong. And, and I'm not speaking in favor or against his book per se. That's not really my point here. I'm not trying to get political. But there's some very important lessons that he learned through his experience that I think you and I need to grapple with today. It's the only reason I'm bringing this up. Because he, he would get, you know, flack from people who said, you know, I didn't like your book, I thought it was garbage, and other people would say, your book changed my life, I have such a wonderful marriage. And so he was really prone to just kind of ignore the haters uh, and just say, oh, whatever, and just ignore them. But he got a comment on Twitter one day, and a girl posted something and said, your book was used, about, your book was used against me like a weapon. Something along those lines. It's probably not the best grammar. But your book was used against me like a weapon. And instead of saying, this is just a hater, this is just someone who doesn't care, blah, 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 something changed. And he responded with two words. Three words, actually. I'm so sorry. And they began a process of private messaging back and forth, hearing her story and better understanding it. And she said at the end of that conversation, you're the first pastor who has ever apologized to me and who has ever admitted that they were wrong. Now, is that a problem? What do you think? That's a big problem. We make mistakes. We hurt people even though we had the best of intentions. But she had never had that before. And she says, no one else has ever taken the time to listen to my story. And it meant so much to her. Then he leaves pastoral work to go to college and further his education a little bit more. He was pastoring in Virginia area, decided to go back to the school, I think up in Canada, that Eugene Peterson runs, the guy who wrote the Message Bible. 
and he went up to, I think, I think it's up there in Canada. So he goes to the school, and then people that he's in school with are also telling him, your book really hurt me or caused problems. And he thought, like, these weren't just avatars that were saying nasty things on Twitter. These were real human beings. And he had to grapple with this. And he eventually does a project for schooling while he was still a Christian. And he made a documentary entitled, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it's pretty thought-provoking. I don't agree with all the conclusions that he comes to, but I did agree with other conclusions he came to. And was thankful that he was able to have that open discourse. And he starts interviewing people on video or over Skype and in person, asking them, what was your experience in reading my book? And he says it was, it was very painful for him, but it was also very helpful for him to recognize, well, how did I end up here? And so he gives this TED Talk in that kind of context. I'm going to quote him from this and what he said, because I think it's very, very fascinating. For those who don't know, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, kind of talking about the perils of what we have today as recreational dating, right? The kind of worldly approach to just wheel and deal, play the field, do you, you'll figure it out. Okay? He was trying to caution against the dangers of that approach, but in his attempts to caution people from those dangers, he found that he made mistakes as he gave further reflection later down the road. Here's what he says. He says, my biggest regret is that there was a lot of fear in me that I transferred into my writing. He says, and fear is never a good motive. Fear of messing up, fear of getting your heart broken, fear of hurting someone else, fear of sex. Why did it take me so long to see these problems? And then he says, I think it's because I was so afraid of being wrong. I was afraid that if I'm wrong, everything's wrong. And he says why. And this is really important for us, especially people in ministry. He said that book had given me an identity. He says in another place, all he wanted as a kid was to be an author and write a book that would change the world. I think his parents worked in the publishing work already, which kind of helped him get to his goal. So he wrote this book. I think when he wrote it, he was like 20 years old and had been in one relationship and wasn't married. And anyone who's married and has kids and so forth would probably kind of laugh at the idea that the person who wrote the expert book on relationships had one relationship in their whole life and wasn't married and was a young person, still very young. And so when he wrote this book, he realized there's certain things that he didn't know when he wrote it, but it was based largely out of fear. I'm so afraid of making the wrong decision. I'm so afraid of hurting somebody, of giving myself away, that that was his main impetus in writing it. And he says that it was hard for him to face up to being wrong because I felt like I was saying a big part of my life was wrong, and I didn't have the courage to do that. And I think this is so important for us as parents, as ministers, and as leaders to recognize that you need to be willing to tell your children when you were wrong. You have to get over that. Like your fear of that and the tension of that, you are not going to gain your children's respect if you do not confess that you're wrong, right? Because you make them fess up whenever they mess up, but you won't fess up when you mess up. That inconsistency really drives young people away. So we have people in leadership claiming standards. And then when they have fallings, nothing really happens or they don't talk about it. But when there's problems with the young people in the church, we make a big stink about it. Are you understanding how this can cause problems? So Josh wrestled with this. And he wrestled with this idea that his whole identity was tied up in a book, right? And being an expert in a particular area of ministry. But that's not what your identity is found. Our identity is in Jesus, your identity can only be anchored in Jesus, not your achievements, not your theological prowess, not your expertise. Are you understanding the danger here? 
It's only in Jesus. And so he realized that he was wrong in that. Now, something that can't be overlooked here, though, is that most of the time, fear is a battle of the subconscious mind that we aren't even aware of. Josh isn't a bad guy, right? Part of the reason why he left Christianity is because all of his life was tied into certain principles that he thought were true and certain things that he thought were the case, but it wasn't based in a love relationship with Jesus, And so when your teachings are challenged, but you don't have a love relationship with Jesus, you have nothing left to stand on anymore. Are you understanding the danger of that? So if you're someone who's just obsessed with principles or obsessed with teachings, but you don't really know God, when someone dismantles those teachings logically or theologically, you have no identity anymore. You're so confused on who you are and what you believe. And this is also what happens to our young people. They don't know who they are. They don't know what the relationship with Jesus is meant to be. And so when they get challenged by college professors or their classmates, even at an Adventist college, They don't know what to do. They have no infrastructure to stand on. Do you see the danger in this, guys? And especially if fear is the only thing that's moving you along. So Josh didn't realize what fear, what effect that fear was having on him and what decisions it was leading him to make or how it would play into the reader's own battles with fear and make it worse. And we can wrestle in the same way. So if we as parents are counseling our children largely based out of our fear of them being lost or getting caught up in the world, their response of obedience will also be based out of fear. Are you seeing the danger here? If we teach out of our fear for them, they're going to respond out of their fear for them, but they never find a true root structure that's theirs, that's solid, that can stand the storms. Do you see, do you see this, guys? This is super, super important for us. We can even teach and preach on fear without realizing how we ourselves are wrestling. So we need to ask God, how is fear ruling us and shaping our lives? This is an appeal to us. Like part of our job as end-time Christians is to search our own hearts, to ask God, Lord, are my motives pure? Am I serving you just out of fear? Am I teaching through a lens of fear? Right? Are our public evangelistic meetings more focused upon the doom and gloom of the end times than the hope that's found in Jesus Christ and that he can see you through these dark, difficult times that are to come? Do you see how this can be so pervasive in religious movements? We mean well. Josh meant well. He wasn't trying to write a book that hurt people. He didn't intend for that. But he didn't know his own heart. And this is something that all of us need to be searching as we're preaching, as we're teaching, as we're giving studies and parenting and nurturing and discipling people. What is it that drives me? Because it's contagious. Do you see that? The fears of Josh surrounding relationships, right, awakened fears that people already had who were reading his book. And in turn, the problem continued. It didn't offer that solution. And that's where I think we can get in trouble. And this reminds me of a text in Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 and verse 7. It says, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. I think this is very fascinating. That even people with wisdom can be beat up by fear and in turn make decisions and develop ideas that aren't reasonable. Even though they're intelligent people, fear can lead us to make bad decisions or develop bad ideas. And this is why we need God to open our eyes and to allow his love to set us free from fear. Do you see that? Okay. So Josh realized how idealism was being pushed through his worldview. Now, he wasn't the only one that did this, but just follow these steps and everything will be fine. You'll marry the first person you date, your marriage will be perfect, your love life will be amazing, etc. It was kind of this money-back guarantee 
philosophy that he now sees was unbiblical and unrealistic. We live in a world of sin. There's lessons that God teaches us even through difficulty. And he never promised us freedom from difficulty, even in following his will. So this kind of relational prosperity gospel that wasn't found in Scripture hurt people. So they get married and then they have problems. Think, whoa, 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 whoa. No one told me I'd have problems. I followed the rules. I followed the list. Why aren't things working? Right? We kind of remove reality from the picture if we're not careful with our idealism. And idealism many times is based in fear. Right? It's like the, the laws that the Jews made. It doesn't point to Jesus. It points to man and his efforts instead of Christ and his efficiency. And it's largely rooted in fear. Right? After the, the nation of Israel went into captivity, they got a whooping. Right? They got put into captivity. They weren't keeping God's law. They weren't being faithful. So they go into captivity, into exile, and they realize after multiple instances of this, you know, every time that we disobey, we get a whooping and we go into exile. Now, how many people in this room like to get in whoopings or getting in trouble? Anybody? Yeah, probably not. And so they came up with this brilliant idea. Let's build a fence around the law of God so we don't get anywhere near it. And they developed all these unreasonable, unbiblical laws. There were 39 Sabbath laws that were not found in Scripture. If you spit on the ground, you're plowing the soil. You can't finish tying your shoes. You can't put the finishing stroke on anything. You can only walk so far on the Sabbath. All these principles had nothing to do with the Bible. But what was it? It was birthed out of fear. Their idealism led them to make human standards that seem moral in nature and that God would probably sign off on, they thought. But they were largely based in fear and didn't help the people. So did those idealistic laws help the nation of Israel accept their Messiah when he came? No, they wanted to crucify him for not keeping their laws. Could we be in danger of that today, beloved? If Jesus walked in this room today, would he have an issue with some of the things that we have created in our human constructs? Right? Something we need to wrestle through. And I'm not downplaying Adventist beliefs or, or any of that stuff. I, I love the health message. I love church reform. All of that. I'm not saying that, so I'm not getting cheeky here. But the point is, if we get all caught up in idealism that's largely rooted in fear, it's not going to set our people up to succeed. Are you seeing that point today? It's a dangerous place to find ourselves. And the other thing is, it can lead us to create standards and rules that aren't biblical to save ourselves and protect ourselves. That's what happened with Josh. And it also leads to additional shame, because now there's more standards that I don't meet, and it makes it even worse. Right? Following the law of God is hard enough, but now to add all the stuff that we've heaped onto the pile makes it even more discouraging when we don't meet the mark. Does that make sense? When we mess up. But God's solution is this. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God wants us to experience a faith that works by love, as it says in Galatians 5, and not a faith that works by fear. That's what God's looking for us. Listen to this, Christ's Object Lessons, page 38.1. In every command and every promise of the Word of God is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. I love this. There's creative power in the Word of God, beloved. In every command that God gives is the power to walk in that command. And even in the promises that God has made to us, in that promise is the power to receive it. That's why the Hagar solution for Abraham didn't work, right? It was only the promise that God had made. 
And so it says, he who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. So one of the reasons why we deal with fear is because we're insecure in our connection and dependence upon God. And the insecurity kind of sabotages our relationship. We've gotten behind the wheel and we feel like we're going to run off the road. And if you're driving, you probably will, (laughs) right? It's good for us to hop back in that passenger seat and let God take the wheel. And so we need God to drive. And if he's not sitting in first place in our lives, we're in trouble, okay? So here's the point. Whatever you're afraid of losing cannot bring you any more security in your identity or freedom or happiness than God can. Whatever we're clinging to, whether it be our fear-based motives or idolatry or anything else, only Jesus can give us our identity, acceptance, and purpose. We're told this in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? I don't have this on the board here, but go to Psalm 34 and verse 4 and add this to your notes. Psalm 34 and verse 4 says this, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Whatever it is that's sacking our religious experience, that's that's driving the life out of us, Jesus is capable of healing us and setting us free. So this implies that that fear affects our ability to trust God, in Psalm 56 specifically. And I believe this is why many of us have those self-protective tendencies. We don't really trust that God will take care of us. We don't really trust that God will lead us into a place that's going to work. And so in turn, we wheel and deal. We make our own protective shells. We don't let people in. And it gets us in a lot of trouble. And this is not the way that God's last generation of people are going to live. They're not going to live an experience of abject fear that mars their theology, that mars their view of God, that mars their relationship with their children and the people that they lead. This cannot be what God is talking about. Are you with me in that, guys? Fear cannot be our motivator. I'll close with one last brief story. How many people have heard of Alex Honnold? Alex Honnold. So this is the guy that free-climbed El Capitan. They did a National Geographic documentary about him. But this guy climbed El Capitan at Yosemite Park in in, uh, California with no ropes. Can you imagine? That's crazy, isn't it? But it's really interesting, his life story. When you, when you read about these you know, amazing feats that people achieve athletically and so forth, the more you hear about these people's personal stories, the less awesome their achievement becomes. You see Michael Jordan weeping on a locker room floor, hugging a basketball after his father is killed. Why? Because his father continually spoke unbelief into him as a kid. He was always competing with his brother to be good enough. And his dad would tell him, you're not... You're never going to amount to anything, kid. And he was saying it in jest, he thought. But that's not how Michael received it. And so Michael Jordan was not a super, you know, successful athlete in his own natural talents. He worked really, really, really hard to get to where he was. And so it just kind of mars the whole thing. Like the reason why he achieved what he did athletically was because he wanted to finally be good enough. Isn't that a tragedy? Someone that people idolize around the world achieved what they achieved largely because they just wanted to be good enough in the eyes of their parent. What a shame. Tiger Woods, similar story. Dad pushed him really, really, really hard. And the first time he wins a major after his dad dies, he's a weeping mess too. And I'm sure you can see many of these threads. So it's a similar story for Alex Honnold, unfortunately. This guy is a super quiet introvert. 
He had never been hugged before in his life until he was a teenager. And he practiced on himself just to see what it would feel like to, you know, if someone does hug me, I better try to like work at it and practice on it. He was never told I love you growing up and went through this really difficult experience. But rock climbing was a new world for him. And as he, let me see if I can find this real quick as we're closing up. Yeah, here we go. So I, you wonder, like, what drives somebody to climb on a rock with no ropes and enjoy it? I don't know about you. That's not what I'm thinking of an enjoying afternoon, like go climb on a high rock with no ropes. What would lead someone to do such a thing? Well, he found freedom in climbing and rock climbing. It was enjoyable to him. But this guy literally re-hardwired his brain. They did brain scans on him because you should be scared of heights. You should be scared of things like this. And they just wondered, does his amygdala not work? Like, is the whole thing just shut off? Is there something wrong with this kid? So they did brain scans, and he has an amygdala, but it doesn't fire. They put him in the tube, and they're showing him all these like horribly graphic images to see if he'd be afraid. He wasn't. His desire to find freedom and to be good enough and to be as close to perfection as possible, because if you fall, you die. But if you don't fall, that's about as close to perfect as you can get. Led him to literally hardwire his brain to no longer feel fear. He didn't have close interpersonal relationships. You see how this can be, like, this is what the human body and mind is capable of when fully driven by just a desire to be loved and accepted and be good enough at the end of the day. This is what Alex says in the documentary. He says, free soloing is the closest thing to perfection, and it feels good to be perfect. His mom would never tell him he did a good job. So this is the only place where he finds those feelings, by cheating death. He says it's about excellence and perfection. I was raised that way, that you have to perform. For me, life is all about performance. Nobody achieves anything great because they're happy and cozy. It's about being a warrior. That is your path, and you will pursue it with excellence. You face the fear because your life demands it. Free soloing demands that because your life depends on it. But what a miserable experience this is. Isn't this sad? Well, the interesting thing is, he gets a girlfriend. And this is in the documentary. And when he gets this girlfriend and starts learning how to open himself up and let himself be loved, he falls twice while rock climbing. He can't focus the same. He doesn't operate the same way. He fell and broke his ankle nearly, and then had another fall where he injured himself really greatly when he was climbing with his girlfriend. And I think it's really, really fascinating that once love was being brought into his life, the way that he had hardwired his brain started to change again. Once he was allowing for interaction and, uh, and openness and intimacy. And I think that there's, there's an important question for you and I today in this, in this kind of perspective that we've been talking about. What is it that drives you? We saw what drove Michael Jordan. He just wanted to be loved and accepted. We saw what drove Tiger Woods. He wanted to be loved and accepted. Fortunately, it's the same story with Alex Honnold. What is it that drives you? And are you open to being loved and letting that wall come down today? Will you let yourself be fully loved and fully known by the God of the universe? Right? These guys worked so hard for something that literally was already theirs in Christ. Are you doing the same thing? Are you working till your hands bleed, trying to prove to God and the people around you that I'm finally good enough? I'm worthy of acceptance. Or can you rest in the acceptance and belief of Jesus today? Are you with me? It's an important lesson for us.
And so, uh, has this made sense this morning? Yes or no? Fear, abject fear is not what God is wanting for his people. It causes problems. You can rewire your brain. You may be able to achieve tremendous things. You may be the most active member in your church, giving amazing Bible studies and baptizing people by the tens, right? Which is a lot for a local church member. But if you don't have rest and peace in Jesus Christ for yourself, why did you go through with all of that? I'm not saying don't do ministry, but are you understanding like, were you just going through the motions and living this life miserable the entire time because you were just trying to prove to God that you were good enough? You were so afraid of being lost? There's something far better for us, beloved, and it's to know and believe the love that God has for us. Amen? That's what we're looking for. That's what God wants for you, and that is absolutely capable. And I believe the three angels' messages are supposed to give people that type of an experience. The everlasting gospel leads people to fear. The, the love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend him. That's the difference. Not abject fear, fear of being lost. That's not what drives them. That's not, that's not a good response to the gospel message. Okay? It should be one of love and reciprocation. Okay? God, thank you so much for loving us in spite of who we've been, in spite of what we've done. Lord, many of us have these deeply held beliefs about ourselves and about you that are unhealthy. It's largely rooted in fear and insecurity, and we're not bad people for having those thoughts. We live in a world where the temptation is real, people are violated and hurt, and it's difficult to trust again, let alone the devil himself. But God, I pray that you would awaken us to better motivations, healthier motivations that are centered in your love for us and not our fear. Lord, we don't want to have a selfish experience. We want one that is delightful for you and also for us. Lord, there are so many people who breathe their last breath, having cherished this message, who are still wondering, was I good enough? Lord, I thank you that Ephesians 1 tells us that we are already accepted in the Beloved and that you want us to know and believe that truth today. Cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.